This is One Hate Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides take you. Give me all you got! Listen. Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's L.A. crime opus Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Hit Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and joining me today for the 125th minute of Michael Mann's 1995 crime opus is a man who thinks that one of the most important things you need to know about him is that he has a tattoo of Elliot Gould smoking. Um, But I also think that uh, he's the perfect man to come and talk about this particular minute from a few words from his incredible piece. Um, He's a staff writer. For Brightwall Darkroom, one of the best publications, uh, film publications online, and he wrote a piece on Sam Peckinpah's "Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia," and two lines really resonate with me. The first one was his description of a room. The and and I quote: "The room is a gaudy piss yellow tableau of junk drawer seventy chic, which it just was the, one of the most fabulous word pictures I could have hoped for." And the other was him talking about the great Sam Peckinpah, a huge influence on the auteur behind this masterpiece, Michael Mann, where he says that Peckinpah's films lament the old-fashioned codes of masculinity and increasingly fraught inquiries into them. Ladies and gentlemen, staff writer for Brightwall Dark Room and also um, LA correspondent for Cinephilia and Beyond, Travis Woods, welcome to One Heat Minute. Well, thank you for having me and like, Hell, forget heat. Let's just talk about what a great writer I am some more. That was, <laughs> that was very flattering. I wasn't expecting that. Well, let's this just, is uh, let's just roll with that for a bit. Oh, let's 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 get talking. Well, look, this is you know I'm if I'm not uh, I'm a very lucky person as a host of this show that so many incredible people out there in the world um, and talented writers and film uh, and film critics and whatnot love this movie and i feel like this is the critical mass that we need to to revitalize we've just as we're recording we've just gone past the oscars and i put one tweet out on the day and just said just as a reminder in 1996 heat had no oscar nominations an undeniable yeah. masterpiece nearly 25 years later zero none nada zip a travesty what was the best picture in 96 or for the 96 oscars what what one it doesn't matter <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like that's, that, that's the, it doesn't matter. So welcome, sir. Thank you so much for being a part of the show. Well, thank you for having me. I'm I'm very excited because I am a humongous Heat nerd and a Michael Mann nerd in general. Yes. And uh, I, as we were talking uh, pre-show, this is this is insane. Like what? <laughs> like this is like there should be like a DSM five entry for what you are doing. Like this is this is insane. But it's wonderful because, as you said. Um, not that like heat is a forgotten movie, obviously everybody knows heat, everybody loves heat. But, um, what I think is one of the things I think is so cool about this is this is one of those movies that people who love it, they've seen it like 500 times. You know, if it's on TV, <laughs> that's, it's the movie that you sit down on the couch. You're like, I'm sorry, I'm, I can't go out now. I, heat's on. <laughs> it's, it's a movie that, you know, if it's playing at a repertory theater where you live, you don't care that it's three hours with no intermission. You're going to sit down. You're going to sit in the theater. You're going to watch it. Um, it is one of those movies we've all 
if anyone's listening to this podcast, it's a movie they have watched a lot and love. But what I love, what I think is so interesting about this podcast is how it recontextualizes the movie in that with every single minute of this film, we are, as listeners, we are listening or we are we are seeing the film through all these different new sets of eyes. Yes. And things that we never would have noticed before, things we never would have picked up on before, um, we're now noticing, or even things we disagree with. And, uh, yeah, I just, I think that's amazing. And it, again, it's insane, but it's, it's amazing. <laughs> that's the thing that keeps me energized too. That's why I like having, that's, that's one of the great joys of having multiple guests. And there are a lot of, you know, there are a lot of minute podcasts and it's debatable, um, uh, on certain films that I think deserve the minute by minute breakdown. There are definitely some amazing ones out there. You know, there's, um, you know, some, a movie like Goodfellas or where it all started. I think Star Wars minute was the very first one that sort of kicked off the cascade. It's like, there are some seminal movies that are out there, but I just think there's this movie stands a test of time to do that. And also stands the additional layer of just having great, unique people bringing their takes to it. Cause as you said, you and I can attest, we've watched this movie countless times like I, I couldn't give you a count of how many times i've now seen this movie and especially with this show seeing sections of the movie in a rotating you know 20 or 30 minutes just to keep myself abreast of you know thematic things that are happening keeping an eye on different characters that i'm talking about and every time someone comes on the show i'm invariably encounter a perspective that i just hadn't thought about before and so it's super exciting to be like i've now watched this movie more than 200 times easily and I'm now like 120 episodes or 125 episodes into the show and I'm getting new perspectives it's really great Jeez. And, and well you know at least you picked a short movie too so yeah, <laughs> I want to do this um, one other thing are you I don't mean to just turn this into a Blake interview but like are you bored with Heat yet I was thinking about this today like you know I I I watched Heat like last month and then I watched it again this week because I was going to be on the show. And before I put it on today, I was just kind of like, God, is this going to, is this going to be boring? I mean, I just watched this and it wasn't, and I loved it, but I'm assuming you've seen it so many more times. Like, are you, are you ever just bored? Is it, do you no. get like, are you like Vincent and uh, Justine where the thrills kind of, <laughs> just not there anymore? The, I'm sorry, the goddamn chicken. Um, no, it's uh, <laughs> no, I'm not. And this is, I, I genuinely am not because uh, I, I just get excited. Um, but to be fair, one thing I would say to folk is I don't watch the whole movie at the moment. It's sort of sporadically. Like every week when I prepare for the show, I don't spend three hours watching the movie again. I usually watch 30 minutes in a rotation. Mm. Let's just say 30 minutes um, in a rotation. So in preparation for this minute, I usually just throw it on like 15 minutes before just to sort of catch up where I am watch the corresponding minutes that I'm going to talk about for like yourself or other shows that are planned. And then I sort of watch it and, and, and do that. So I'm not bored. I kind of dive back in and it's like, I don't know. I don't know any other way to describe it other than like, have you ever had a favorite novel that you've read so many times and dog eared the pages so many times that you can pick up any page and start reading and you're okay with it. Like I can literally any entry point into this movie, whether it's a minute before this for half an hour or any point, I feel like I'm like, I'm, I'm experiencing it in a weird way that's more like a no like a novel, the intimacy of a novel where you've just literally, you know, if if my Blu-ray 
could tell a story of how many times it's been watched. Like I broke a Blu-ray, I ran it to death, and then I had to buy the same one again. So, um, no, I'm not bored. I'm I'm thrilled, but it makes me a much more discerning character, I guess, as a film critic and as a as a film consumer of like the value of every single minute. And when I feel like waste, I think if anything, it's made me feel wasted minutes um, a mm. lot more in, in lesser movies um, or, or, or movies that have got, uh, that aren't as aware and as innately sort of um, uh, it's communicative with their audience about the emotional trajectory of what they want you to be on. So as soon as you feel like, I feel like it's made me a, a worse bad movie watcher because as soon as it's a bad, I'm just like, oh, this is, God, this is grating. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's... Um, no, not bored yet. I'm, I'm excited. You talked about a repertory theatre. In Australia, there's a little one in a... In an in a, in a eastern suburb of Sydney called Randwick Ritz, a cool little repertory theatre. And in a couple of weeks um, in Australia, they're playing Heat on 35 mil for two days. They're going doing a Friday session and a Sunday session. And uh, I was telling my friends about it. I said, I'm going to go along and see it. And one of my friends goes, who are you kidding? You're going to go see it twice. And they're right. I am. <laughs> I am oh, going to go so see. I'm going to. I know it is, but it's also, <laughs> but also the experience of watching the exact version that we're talking through today, not the director's definitive edition, like a 35 mil print of the original theatrical release of Heat yeah. on the big screen with an audience, is thrilling because it's a it's a different. I think it plays so different with an audience. You know, yeah, and, it, it, it does. You know. I, I saw it. Um, I saw it with my old man uh, the week it came out in right. uh, December. It was like right before Christmas, so like '95, and um, I was way too young. I was 13, <laughs> um, and I was terrified. And then, um, and then I've seen it a couple more times in repertory theaters, like the the New Beverly here in LA. And it is it is a, it is a blast to watch it with oh. an audience as your eardrums are just being hammered by the gunfire. Um, and just smothered by it, and it, it is a blast to watch. With especially, there's been um, uh, I was at one screening where whoever was doing a Q and A for it asked the audience if there were people who hadn't seen it before, and uh, there were a good number of hands that were thrown up that hadn't seen it. And I, I tried to clock each one of them and keep my eyes on those people during <laughs> the movie, yes, and all the twists and turns, and like whenever like some Wayne Grow shit would go down. Or especially the, the the big the the big chase, the confrontation at LAX at the end, um, just seeing people moan and grab their fists and stuff that I don't normally see people do in theaters anymore. <laughs> it was great to see uh, so so much so long after the movie had come out, see people still reacting to it like that in such a fresh way. Yeah, I just don't and- think people realize how funny Al Pacino is in this movie. Like it's a misunderstood <laughs> performance. I honestly, it's a it's a pressure relief. I saw the director's definitive edition last year in Australia. There was a little thing called the American Essentials Film Festival, and they did an LA like they did a profile like a little part of their program was LA films, great LA films. I think they had LA Confidential, Chinatown, Collateral was on the list as well, I believe, and and Heat, and um, and I just remember like the tension and the intensity of this thing, and then you hear Vincent say something and he's just he just like he eases the pressure of the the mounting pressure of the screen and the sound in that movie sometimes in the mood he just eases it and you laugh and like there were people like who hadn't seen the movie before just cackling like it was like a great pressure release but then you know building up to this confrontation look we've got an amazing minute we've got to get into i just was looking at the time like we've got to get into this minute because it's important yeah we are in trouble because i never shut up so just just (laughs) fair warning and a pre-apology to listeners like i will not shut up once i start 
look, this is good. Um, this is good. Joe Lynch, hello. Speaking of not shutting up, my one of our favorite guests on the show, Joe, is uh, is talked for the record, and I think Travis is going to go for it. So let's do it. Um, <laughs> oh, got, well, hell, really quick, what's the record? What's I got to know what I got to beat here. I think I think one of the individual Joe Lynch minutes was like an hour and ten on one minute. Oh Christ! I can crack that. Like, uh, <laughs> oh come on, Joe. We can do this. Um, so this is the hundred and twenty fifth minute. Two hours and four minutes on the dial on the original theatrical version of Heat um, uh, for, for everyone listening. Um, this is a moment that I just like to call, um, it's it's just a McKelty Williamson, Ashley Judd showcase. And, you know, in talking to Travis about it, um, he made some astute observations, what I'll let him expand on around this movie is a collection of people being presented with choices and there's not really a good choice. It's kind of layers of bad choices or layers of choices that compromise who they think they are. And this is one of those moments that is of such an elevated and personal nature that this is these are the parts of the movies that really scour out your soul um, in this movie. So really looking forward to you guys watching it. And it, again, an unbelievable Ashley Judd performance on show. Um, so we're going to watch the 125th minute together. And then we're going to come back and we're going to unpack it for you. So what now? Well, he's right. Because you want out, this is out. You believe you have to betray Chris? No shit. That's right. You would have to. See, if you don't betray Chris, you victimize Dominic. Because he becomes an orphan when you go to prison as an accessory because you got no living parents to take it. So he ends up state-raised in foster homes, juvenile facilities. Then he steals a car. Then he winds up in gladiator academies like Gino and Tracy. Fucked for life. You know what happens because you've been there. Dominic didn't get a chance yet to choose his life, but Chris did. Jesus Christ. What a clean 60-second short story that that <laughs> yes. is. That is so clean where that cuts off, where that ends. In this big you know, novel of a film, that is such a perfect, perfect little snapshot mm. and perfect um, little it, – it, it, if I can jump in, if you don't mind, because um, I love like it. Like I said, I'm gonna I'm gonna take up a lot of air here. Um, when you first sent me this minute, um, I yeah, I don't know if you remember, I was kind of bummed at first, uh, or I you were. because I was like, well, that, that's not really like one of the iconic moments. I want Wayne Gross sucking air, you know, with a bullet wound in his chest. You know, spoiler <laughs> warning. Um, and uh, I, you know, I, I you know, I want uh, I want uh, Nate telling Macaulay, you know, you're home free, you know, take it easy. Uh, this scene. What's in this scene? And I, but then I went back and I watched it, and that's one of the great things about this podcast, as well as it does force you to look at some of these tinier moments and realize how necessary they are and how little fat is is around the waist of this thing, despite mm. being 165 minutes. Um, and it might not be the flashiest scene, but it really is in a lot of ways. If heat is a is a movie of extremes you know uh, the law on one end and criminality on the other uh this scene really is just a one minute microcosm 
of all of that. Yes. Where on on one side you've got the heat literally <laughs> uh, bracing someone and uh, doing what we see, what we've seen Pacino do the whole movie, which is take in the absorb the flow of information around them and be able to case somebody and predict what their what their needs are and predict what their choices are going to have to be to get the jump on them and to box them in. And then on the other side of that, you have someone involved in criminality who, you know, they he or she has made like a series of, of choices in their life that is now it's backed them into a corner where they have to make this one kind of final existential choice that they think is, you know, it's either going to they're either going to choose to save themselves or what they think will save themselves or not. And that's literally just that's all of that. All of that pretentious shit that I'm talking about right now, <laughs> that is all so cleanly just wedged into this little 60-second vignette uh, on, in, in this Venice Boardwalk safe house in, uh, in Heat. And I, I think it's amazing. I think it's amazing too. I think you're so right. Is you can The great thing is that we can project the more existential things about the minute. But what I love about this minute is the matter-of-fact delivery Oh, the yeah. d- the dance between these two characters, it's not there's there's no lack of familiarity with a situation like this. Charlene knows what the deal is, and Drucker knows equally what the deal is. And I love when, I just love the 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 wordplay of do you think, do you think you'd have to betray Chris? And she's like, no shit. And he goes, yeah, that's right. Like he does, there's no there's no hiding, there's no artifice. Yeah. yeah, that's right. You will have to betray him. Now let me it's, tell and let me unpack that for you, and then that's when he gets to drop that science at the end of that scene. And it, but it's so bluntly written that <laughs> yes. it almost feels like a screenwriter's note of what needs to be accomplished in the screen or on the screen and in the scene, yes. what needs to be accomplished, as opposed to what the the poetry that you're actually going to have your character espouse. But instead, he's just like, you think if you you betray Chris, uh, well, that's right, you are. Because if you don't betray Chris, you're going to victimize Dominic. And just this very kind of bricklayer language of A plus A, B, C, D. And but I love that because, you know, for one thing, he's on a clock. Yes. Um, They've only got like 10 hours to get 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 the wheels moving on this. So he's on a clock. He doesn't have time to play games. Um, And she's not a game player. No, the diagnosis between the diagnosis between those two. I love there's a you know as opposed to Marciano Hankazaria's character like when there's so many <laughs> wonderful looks that M- Michael T Williamson gives Judd here that it just the only way I can describe it and he's in obviously one of Michael Mann's you know the one of the greatest boxing movies ever made he's in Ali as Don King but it's a it's he's sizing up an opponent he knows he diagnoses immediately she's not effing around he knows where the weakness is and it's Dominic. And he's got to exploit that, and he's got to and he's got to let her know very straight up that with no, you know, no massaging, no, you're going to make a choice because otherwise you victimize this kid, and itemize here why. Well, yeah, and he reads her uh, rightly so as she's a, and, and and as we've seen throughout the film, she's a pragmatist, and he is able, to, you know, just like you know. What's Kelso say early in the movie? It, 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 this stuff just comes to you. It's broadcast in the air. You just have to know how to. You have to know how to grab it. I know how to grab it. And a lot of the, you know, as we see Hannah do, and as we're seeing um, Drucker do, 
he's he's grabbing that information from her, realizing that she's not a bullshitter. She's a pragmatist and she's a survivor. Mm. And most of all, as she said in her very first scene, um, she is about risk versus reward. Yes. And that is that is what determines her decision making risk versus reward. And and I don't want to jump on someone else's minute, but as he's going to say in a moment to her when they have that uh, three way call with Hannah, he's just going to say, you know, one answer. What's it going to be? And he doesn't have to be any prettier with her. And I got to cheat again and jump to this next minute. But when, you know, she has that great kind of hard boiled noirish line, you know, what else are you selling? And he's like, bunch of bullshit, but I don't have to sell this. This, <laughs> this shit sells itself. <laughs> yes. And that's why, again, another reason why he doesn't have to doll this up. He knows that she's smart enough that he just has to lay this track and explain what Dominic's life is going to be, how you know he's going to become institutionalized while you, Charlene, are in jail. He's going to steal a car. He's going to be thrown in uh, to some place. He's going to be thrown into like Chino or Tracy, these gladiator academies where it's going to get it's going to be rough. There's mm. going to be a lot of violence. He'll probably have to join up with some Peckerwood crew just for protection, whether it's like Aryan Brotherhood or Nazi lowriders if he's like in Chino. And hell, he might not even grow up to become another Chris. He might grow up to be another Wayne grow, mm. you know, or something. And, and like he's. And he and and the and he's being he's able to say that so dispassionately and matter of factly because he's seen this a million times, and we get the sense that Charlene has heard this story with other people and the people uh, with the criminality that she is surrounded with, and yeah, it, 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 I'm glad you brought that up that just the that that matter that amazing matter of fact delivery because it's such a smart choice and smart performance. Um, he doesn't need to do anything more, and he no, knows you don't that. Need, and 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 a lesser movie would ha- have him give like florid prose bullshit that doesn't really need to be in this scene. And I think that the fact that Charlene doesn't want to engage with him is all the more poignant because she knows what he's saying. He's she's actually, already thinking. She's already. She's already, she's, already waiting. she's already calculating it. And I think what he says here, which is good, like a good context setter for folk, is. Charlene's seen this life and I think that that's why she's so matter of fact with Chris which is what you pointed out is earlier in the film she knows it's risk versus reward she's trying to get them and elevate them out of that life because if he's taking the risk she wants to continue to distance herself and Dominic away and as Chris starts to spiral what's her survival mechanism she starts to go to another guy who seems legitimate in Nevada businessman successful that's the guy she's having an affair with you know she's she's thinking about the next move is an escape move and her look back here, her frustration is partially directed behind us as we're watching the film because she's looking over at Marciano, probably jawing on with these, these cops who are actually standing in there (laughs) being pissed off that this escape route has gone totally haywire on her, but also that she's trying to elevate Dominic out of that life. And, and she's even given Chris the ultimatum, you know, you can keep doing this shit, but Dominic goes with me. And what am so, I doing in this rap bastard situation? What are we doing in this rap bastard situation exactly? And so, it's uh, I I just I I I think that I think that choices to make scenes big or small um, when they have such really 
perfectly pitched character understanding. Um, it just it, it flows in such a different way that even if it seems like the dialogue is grubby, and when you read it on paper, it is grubby. It's not mm. it's not finessed. It's it's grubby, but it's in this moment they don't need anything else. It's so great. Yeah, it was actually even grubbier in the script. I don't know if you've seen the yeah. uh, the shooting script, but all of the stuff about uh, gladiator academies and like the darkness of Dominic's future. It's basically like he goes to juvie and he steals a car. And that's it. Yeah. Uh, and so, but this this was pitch perfect. And and um, what I quick quick question, as as probably the the foremost authoritative expert on heat <laughs> that there is, um, do you take into account because Michael Mann's known for doing a lot of backstory? Do you take in character backstory, un unfilmed character backstory, into account? Do you do you view that as canon for lack of a better term yeah i i I think i i think i know what you're saying and i I kind of do i like that man um one of the things that you know i've written about but i haven't written about it a great deal and i think you've kind of tapped into it is people talk about method acting a lot and i i think i if i had to qualify what i think michael mann's style is it's method directing like he has this mm-hmm. imposition of method um, and character on individuals in the story. So for him, he sort of he'll impose with Charlene that she's been she's probably been in jail. If not, she's had multiple partners who have been in jail. She's been around crime her whole life. Her her complicit way that she interacts with it and being so matter of fact about risk and reward. There's a whole bunch of stuff there, and also that survival mechanism comes with you know potentially a woman who's experienced violence in her life like you know domestic violence and so like talking specifically about Charlene that's how I kind of read into that canon really interesting to note that Reed Coleman and Michael Mann later this year are going to be releasing the heat prequel so interesting to see yeah. how many characters actually feature and how much of that you know homework has done it but that's i i i kind of um in these little moments you glean so much information because I love I love in this moment that Drucker's already picked her apart. You know what this is like. You know this in prison and da da da. And Chris did this and Chris did that. And you know maybe these are the things that you can intuit about what happened in Chris's life because he's literally probably reading a, a laundry list of what happened with Chris. You know, Chris stole a car, then he went to Gladiator yeah. Academies, yeah. and this is his life. And that's probably why it's even more. So I yeah I I do I like to I like to think about that stuff. And even in this show. They didn't realize that Neil had a Marine background um, until he had a Marine tattoo. tattoo. Um, And so it's just some of those times where you just glean this additional information after watching it. You're like, oh, my God, of course. That that makes sense. That's where it all all comes down to, the discipline. Well, the reason reason that I asked that is, A, because, yeah, I, I wondered if this potential future for Dominic that... Charlene's choice would engender this this dark road to uh, to Tracy to Chino to to safe cracking to to gang life. Um, if that was uh, a reflection, a, a knowing reflection of Chris's story yeah. on Drucker's behalf, but also something that I thought was kind of interesting is, um, you know, as much as this is a real kind of uh, a real workout scene for McKelty Wilson Williamson, excuse me. Um, and really gets to show what he can do well. I, I love Judd's performance in this scene, oh. her, this performance of silence. And one of the things that always um, haunts me whenever I watch any of her scenes in the later half of the film is the backstory that she and Man created for this character. Uh, because she, you know, as you know, she did all these interviews with the wives and ex-wives and girlfriends 
of um, of criminals, and she viewed the character. And this is the, this is the backstory that Man gave her that um, not only is she a pragmatist, pragmatist and a survivor, um, but why and how she became that way, and that you know she was probably a teenage prostitute, and returned to that after she'd had Dominic, but when Chris was in prison. And that she was literally out there just on Van Nuys Boulevard, in the words of Michael Mann, <laughs> turning 50 tricks a night and then coming home and, you know, seeing her son or in the very early days of uh, after he got out of jail, coming home and seeing Chris. And that to be able, in his mind and in Ashley Judd's mind, for her to be able to go from that from that type of evening to sitting down next to Chris on the couch with Dominic to watch TV that she's become this dispassionate and somewhat compartmentalized human being who can make these very, very kind of cold, necessary decisions. And that's what I, that's what I always see. And that's what I always think of while um, Drucker is laying, laying it out for her, just seeing the dread on her face as she's leaning against the wall. You, I think you only see like, a quarter of her face because she's turning and kind of facing him. But just you see the dread of knowledge as she is weighing whether she's going to go back, able to go back to that kind of life um, if she makes the wrong choice. And, you know, is it, it's because only because that, that white because that white is apparent on her face, you know, like. To, it is, to, and it's to, what drives all of the decisions that she makes. Is just like she is, just like Neil McCauley, because just like Neil McCauley, not just in pragmatism, not just in terms of being a survivor and uh, this kind of self-taught, real-world attitude. Just like Neil, she's not going back. No, just like she's not going back to that type of prison that she lived in. I'm so glad that you said that because it's a it's it's a great little tidbit, and we we haven't dived into it too much, but there's an amazing. Um, there's an amazing story at the end of, uh, I think it's called The Bird Revelation, Dave Chappelle's most recent second half mm. comedy special in Netflix, where he talks about, he tells a story about Iceberg Slim's book, oh, the final story in Iceberg Slim's book, and he says it's the Capitalist Manifesto, and it talks about, and I'll let you watch it, it's on Netflix, you can watch it up right now, anyone who's around the world, it talks about mileage on a hoe. And it talks about that everyone has their breaking point. And I think for Charlene, um, without going too much into detail, because I think you just echoed with me right now, is that Charlene's mileage for that life is she's done with it. And I think her planting the seed, she's planting the seeds with Azaria's character to get out of LA, to get into what she feels like might be a legitimate relationship. This guy's planting the seeds that I'll take you away, you and your son, etc. You can have a new life. You know, she just wants out. She, you know, and especially the proximity in LA. If if it is true to the to that canon, that backstory canon of her turning tricks, it also is evident in her language. What are you selling? Like, what shit yeah. are you selling? Yeah. Like, this yeah. is someone who knows the game. It's maybe talk to someone on the street for a tra- in a transactional manner. Um, and also, you know, she's got that cognitive distance, right? Neil talks to her that way in a sort of mean way. You can also intuit that that's Neil. Clean up, go home. Like, Neil knows, you would guess, if she's turning tricks when Chris is in and out, he knows that too. Neil knows that she's turned tricks. So, the way that he speaks to her in that disrespectful way is that. So, yeah, that's how I've always felt. I've I've always felt that. And I definitely think paired with 
her backstory and paired with Drucker's telling of a story, it really is a it's a tale of their two lives intersecting. Like she's been on the street, she's been around it. His whole life means this. And the last thing that she ever wanted was she wanted that escape. And and now the frustration and anger that's on her face at the end of this minute and that corresponds into the next scene is I thought this guy was my escape route. This freaking dummy was going to help me get out of here. He's got some money. He was going to elevate me and my kid's life. I was going to have a route out of this life because Chris is spiraling out of control. And it's not that. And this is a little off minute. And forgive me. No, um, you don't have to say sorry. Cause like Neil McCauley, Travis, like Neil McCauley, we have the discipline, but we continually <laughs> break it. <laughs> we continually okay. make decisions. Uh, you know, as as I'm sure you're learning, because I, I just never shut up, especially about this movie. Um, but do you do you think she's in? She's really into Alan in any any real capacity, or do you think that she's no. she's just uh, uh, kind of leapfrogging out of the life with uh, Chris, uh, and that he is he is someone that can be utilized to do that? I've I've always thought it was the leapfrog. I've always thought yeah. she was going to get out, especially the way she tells Neil. Like, I love the the ferocity of their encounter, that first encounter that they have, and you really see that she becomes one of the only people that actually legitimately stands up to Neil. Stands up to him. Um, it, it, the way she says, "It's too late. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of it." Like that, just <laughs> that that grinds into my brain. Like, you know, whenever I'm, you know, it, you know, a line is powerful when it changes how you think about a line when someone says it. If someone says, "I'm," it's too late, or if anyone says, it's, "I'm sick of it." Any any of those lines, I always just repeat. I'm like a parrot. I'm like too late. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of it. Like I can't help myself. It's like a tick. Um, but that scene is that's what I feel. Like Marciano is a way out. That's what he is. And it's particularly like you think this woman, Ashley Judd, isn't only like absolutely mesmerizingly beautiful. She's, you know, and the pairing of peak Kilmer and peak Judd is like, it's almost like <laughs> Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie. It's just too much. Like, stop. Um, Joanne Woodward, Paul Newman, pew, just explosion. Like, you can't help it, right? And so what I would say is, how many goddamn people are in LA? 18 million? Like, surely there's another man in LA if she really wanted, if if that was the purpose of what she was seeking. She's seeking an out-of-town businessman who, in her mind, has no connection at all to criminality. That's why she's so frustrated with, like, oh, goddamn. Like, you have some bullshit that they can leverage? Like, you were the yeah. last... I thought you were some dick who was just a, a douchebag um, yeah. who had money. And so that's how I've always read that scene. There's no, there's no love between them. Hence, there's no love lost in this scene. Her, her revelation that he's an idiot is more of a disappointment in her own gauging of his personality. Um, yeah. And to your point, or this is how I always read it, to your point, it's like if she's turning 50 tricks a night, you think she doesn't know how to read people? So for her, yeah. it's like I'm getting sloppy. You know, this is frustrating. Which also kind of adds kind of a, a sad, unsettling layer to their, their hotel room tryst. Oh, yes. You know, it, but also, uh, it, it, again, Jesus Christ, we're jumping into an entirely different minute. But, <laughs> but the last thing I'll say about that minute is, uh, well, two things. The reason I laughed when you said I'm sick of it, I'm sick of it, is um, uh, my girlfriend is also obsessed with heat and has watched this movie so many times that whenever she's pissed at me, she will jokingly <laughs> yell, I'm, I'm sick of it, just in that way, just to get at me. But um, I love Judd in that scene uh, with with Neil, you know, the, the clean up, go home scene, when um, – she just she's like who is he and she's like it's alan marciano and the way she describes him it's the weirdest no one would say this he's a legit liquor wholesaler yes. but what the reason i like that is she is 
she's saying what is important to her. Like it would mm-hmm. mean anything to Neil. He's a legit guy that makes money. He's an out for me. Mm-hmm. And I just love the psychology of that. And something that I don't know if man gets a lot of credit for are these these tiny little lines like that that so cleanly and clearly display a character's uh, psychology. He's a legit guy. He's a legit guy. No one would say that. If, you know, you get caught, you know, sleeping with someone else. Your first thing that you say when you describe them is not, look, this person's a legitimate businessman. Don't worry. And how smart is she to know yeah. that he needs yeah. to know that? That's what that I love about that. that. He needs to know that he's legitimate because the first thing he thinks is, have you screwed me over by adding more yeah. heat into my situation by another crook? Because if, they, yeah. if they're in as him to me, then I have a choice to make about you. Like we never get to yeah. that, but we we all know that Neil is not going to muck around um, uh, because he's he's more concerned about the relationship that you know the damage and the fallout that might happen if he has to do anything to Charlene or force Chris's hand. Um, so yeah, it's in that moment he's a legitimate businessman, which completely yeah. kills Neil's line of inquiry on that because he's like then he flips it. He's like, okay, you need to work this out with Chris because Chris yeah. is his most important ally. And of course, what turns out is actually Neil's number one fear is true that this guy is like half a wise guy that's got like a, a cigarette smuggling charge or something like that. And that somewhere down the line, New Jersey. <laughs> yeah, he's from Jersey. Somewhere down course. the line, just like a, just like I said, the heat's going to they're going to absorb that flow of information. They're going to read him. They're going to brace him and they're going to find out how they can lean on him to get one step closer to the Macaulay crew, which is brings us back to our minute, which is where we are now. And I, I, I since this is a, a podcast entirely about asides and conversational cul-de-sacs and things like that, I just want to say really quick, goddamn, I love these 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 cop these LA cop movies where everyone is somehow able to afford beachfront property. Oh, I know. It's... And whether it's whether it's Chance as the Secret Service guy in to live and die in LA that is just living right on the beach, or. Uh, well, hell, uh, William Peterson again in uh, Manhunter in Florida. He's right on the beach, or even Beautiful. Martin Riggs. He's got. He might have a have a uh, an RV, but it's on the beach. I love that the LAPD in this movie has a safe house right on the right boardwalk. On Venice Beach. Venice right beach. on the boardwalk. <laughs> right on the boardwalk. And, and look, to 80s, show you- an eighties house. This is the other thing. The great Manola Dargis, who's been on the show a few times, said to you know talked about Edie and Neil's interaction on her house. That beautiful. Um, ocean lit up skyline house that's on the rim of LA, like in the hills. And and we talked about, you know, this is one time where we, we allow Michael Mann, his fantasy to think that a graphic designer <laughs> could afford that Oh house. my God, it's living right above Sunset Plaza. <laughs> in that house. And it's one of the few things that bothers me about this movie is with this graphic designer that's having to work two jobs, um, two jobs. one of which is, a, is at a bookstore. Mm-hmm where she's probably making minimum wage is living above sunset plaza in this lovely little ramshackle house. But yeah, um, I love that. The, I, I don't know what the LAPD's budget is or was in 1995. <laughs> um, but I did do some checking because I am insane. Yes, and this is the this. place for it. I love this. Um, that house was last sold in March of 1994 for eight hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars, wow. which is what the LAPD would be laying out for this safe house that clearly is never used because there's like one couch. It is now, <laughs> if they were to use it today in in today's dollars, it is currently on the market for five million one hundred eighty-one five hundred forty-nine dollars, one hundred eighty-one thousand five hundred forty-nine dollars. 
for a 3,000 square foot, three bed, four bath bungalow what on, on Venice Boulevard. What I was going to say to you is that 825000 that eight hundred twenty-five thousand dollars is a is a around a four bedroom house in a western sort of southern Sydney suburb right now. A four bedroom house, double brick. Yeah, it's uh, that's um, uh, <laughs> but five point one million. Yeah. Wow. I, I I felt like I needed to contribute that um, for no other reason than this 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 is the insane home for that, and I just you know hope to dazzle you with my real estate acumen. Oh, look at I, that. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, if if you were, if you didn't already think that Travis's film criticism was good, he's got a backup career in uh, in, in in knowledge of the retail market of LA property. Actually, it was like literally the first Google entry for that address because I've been there before, so I just looked up the address. It's funny um, later, uh, for the episode. There's a great double episode coming up: an Australian Academy Award nominated filmmaker and editor Luke Doolan, who edited probably most famously for the crowd who's listening to this, he edited um, a, a, the Australian movie Animal Kingdom. He um, he came on the show to talk about the Ashley Judd, the f- infamous Ashley Judd gesture minute, which we can talk Ooh. about. And it was really funny. He and a, another actor, Australian actor Henry Nixon, um, were, were in that episode, and um, they were in Venice. When they were recording, because Luke currently lived in Venice, and Luke's like, I, I've oh, been yeah, to yeah, that. Yeah, you know, I've, I've, I've heard this episode. I've heard. I think I've listened to this. I, I was the, jumping. It was a little. Go ahead, please, it was a little please. snippet, but he was like, I've, I've lived there. I've put a snippet of it up, but the, the actual full episodes um, are going to be coming up pretty soon. So, yeah, no, it's just so funny that it's like it's, it's, it's probably the most expensive apartment because of that aspect. You know, you need that, you need that gorgeous crane shot that goes down to the street to get to Val. For, yeah. I think that that's pretty much why we're here is, you know, they, they need that shot for that gorgeous, you know, approach yeah. and, and that two shot of those two guys um, in, in those spots. I, and I do love that shot, that right down Navy Street as the camera descends and like hooks around the corner from the mm-hmm. balcony. Um, I got to break into that house sometime. I just want to walk around inside a, a one just heat want, location. Just want to walk you, around. You can't go into any houses. Huh? You just want to walk around. You just need to take a photographer friend so you can take all, like, just snap, like, just um, stage a few of the heat shots. Do a beautiful one where you're looking at your your lovely girlfriend. Like, she's looking <laughs> away from you like Ashley Judd and you're like Drucker, like, looking at it, like, you know, sort of get that perfect uh, perfect aspect there. Yeah, I, I just want to stand on the balcony and do the cut gesture. And then she'll get really pissed and drive away because, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm... I'm committing a felony just to get a really cool picture to put on Twitter of me doing the, uh, the cut gesture. Um, let's see. Uh, so anyway, just brief. Yeah, crazy, wacky, weird aside. I just think it's hilarious that, that, that that's where that they that's where they actually have their safe house. And since you have other people that are going to be talking about the the hand gesture minute, I don't know what you want to call it, but that minute. Um, I, I won't I, I, I don't want I don't want to step on anyone's toes, but what I really think is fascinating about Charlene and Charlene's psychology is everyone else in the film, as we've said, uh, gets put into a position where they have to make the ultimate capital E existential choice for themselves in this film. Uh, that every and everyone that makes that choice does so out of self-interest. They are doing even if it ends up being the wrong thing as in the case of like Macaulay, yes. um, they're doing it because they think it is in their self-interest. They think it is the right choice to make f- 
for them. Mm-hmm. And what I think about what I think is interesting about Charlene and you know, spoilers for the one insane person that's listening to this podcast that hasn't seen Heat um, is that she actively is the only character. She's the only character that actively knowingly makes the choice she know will be wrong for her yes. and wrong for Dominic. And I, I just find that that is also, you know, talk about a script, uh, Michael Mann being a writer that can surprise you um, with his characterizations. That is that is one of the left hooks that this movie throws that I did not see coming, mm. either when I was like a 13 year old kid that had no idea what he was watching. But even, you know, when I watched it as an adult, it it is just it's a, it's an amazing moment and it's an amazing human moment where she's going to make you think she's going to make one choice and all Val Kilmer has to do is smile that pretty smile and she melts and makes the wrong choice and knows that she's making the wrong choice and that is such especially from such a pragmatist like her and, and, and the 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 very serious survivor the matter of fact black and white risk versus reward survivor that we've seen up to this point that is just such a monumental and devastating and very real and human moment and i just i wanted to blather on about that for for you totally three minutes. you're allowed to i've always I do think that I've it's al- an amazing surprise it's an, of characterization it's an amazing surprise and also i think it's there's there's a there's a there's a gap in air where there's a just a, an exchange of looks prior to the gesture and it's really powerful. I'm looking forward to you guys listening to the episode when it comes up. And um, one of the things I would say about it that I've thought more on it since recording that episode, because it was recorded with Luke some time ago, um, is how he looks. So he looks beaten up. Like he looks like yeah. Chris, but he almost is unrecognizable. His face is really tight, his face like is pinched down towards his collarbone. Pinched yeah. down, and he's a bit, he looks a bit swollen and red. Yeah. And he smiles up at a. And she appraises him, and it's the just the the emotions that she's able to convey. Mm. There's like a, a deep pity and empathy, and you watch her make the decision that she's gonna she's gonna have that choice. She's gonna do something that is ultimately yeah. selfless, and it's a gamble. The risk versus reward in that situation is yeah. something that Chris would gamble on. It's it's not a Charlene move. It's a Chris move, but her empathy in that moment is so powerful. And that's like, there's moments in this movie that just get to me. Every, like it sounds yeah. cliche, but it's like, they literally get me every time. And that exchange, um, you guys will get to hear it. Of, of which you guys would have already heard in episode 123. So only two episodes ago. It's so funny that this minute is now coming back up. Um, Bill Gabiri called that. If, if all of cinema was thrown into the ocean and we knew nothing about it, that you could teach people the power of cinema with that scene alone, not just that minute, <laughs> that scene. He's like, and he's, he's, he's much more uh, uh, lofty in his aspirations, but I think he's right. It's like conveying the editing, the emotional, you know, the, the, the mounting emotional pressure, the pressure of the people that are inside, like the entire construction of that scene from beginning to end as the car comes down the street, as you see Drucker, as you see the, cops as you see Charlene directed to go out there as you see their exchange and you understand the context of everything that's going to happen between them it's so incredibly powerful and it's just a moment and there's no words not a single thing you could make it a silent film um, and just have the music uh, and it's it's just perfect 
they're they're empathy machines. That's what these that's what these movies are. That it's is empathy it. Machine. That's what that scene is. That is it. And, and that's uh, what it is. And where look, it, we're, it, this is what the, the brilliance and the and the uh, I allow the lack of discipline on this show is. Once we scrutinize the minute, you have to talk. That's one g- wonderful thing is that they do operate as these lovely vignettes. But then what I think sort of exponentially makes them more powerful is how they have underpinnings and echoes in other minutes, like how they yeah. how how things are happening across the film. Even the same words are said to certain characters, and the same bargains that are being delivered it's like exactly as you you intimated at the beginning of the episode it's like these are just choices after choices that are just being laid out for people to make and you you're desperate for them to make the right choice but it's not easy to see what the right choice is for especially in the second half of this movie it's like you're not easy to see what the right choice is it's and sometimes the choice you want them to make isn't the right choice it's not the survival it's for the drama um and so we have to be on their side to watch them make watch so many of these people make the wrong choice and that's the thing too. When you, God, we're we're just so not on our minute anymore. But yeah, when you do watch that scene, I don't feel like you're ever mad at her, mm-hmm. even though you're like, "Look, you're Dominic's mother. You can't do this to this kid. You're going down as an accessory." Because we all know, you know, Chris probably didn't have his name on the cars or the property. It was everything was probably laundered through Charlene, um, or you know, everything has her name on it. So she's going to lose everything, mm-hmm. bare minimum. She's losing everything if she doesn't go to jail which she probably will dominic probably will be institutionalized um he will go through the system he's probably everything that that drucker said is probably going to come true but in that moment when she has that almost motherly tender smile of Mm -hmm. looking at him once he smiles and that look that just says yeah he's an idiot but he's my idiot Yes. You know, yes. Who else? No one else in this world is going to look after Chris Shaherless besides me. And even though the same is set, can be the same should be said of Dominic. There is just that wonderfully human moment of just not being able to help yourself and to talk about how that ties into other things, as you just said. And I'm going to totally use this to ju- to cheat and jump to my favorite minute. It's very <laughs> similar. It's very similar to Macaulay in the tunnel mm. when. He's broken the rules for the first time or his rules for the first time in his life. And that kind of gleeful, emotional nihilism of realizing he's out there on the edge breaking rules. And that's what got him Edie. So he's going to. So in his mind, that's going to work against Wayne Grow. And just this this weird. I'm really fascinated by the weird parallels between Macaulay and Charlene and how they both are these very controlled, orderly uh, uh, pragmatist is what I, the word I keep using, who their downfall is pretty much engendered by the fact that they discover this, maybe this excess of humanity within themselves that they didn't, they were no <laughs> longer aware of, or they had sanded down and kept tamped down. And at the most crucial elevated moment of their lives is when they let that humanity overwhelm them. And it is both what makes them human, but it's also, as we're going to see, uh, probably with Charlene, definitely with Macaulay, it's the thing that destroys them. Yes. Destroys them both. And just, yeah, and how the, how all of their decisions are interrelated into this just distribution of fates throughout the film and how these two characters have such sense, as much as we can talk about, um, you know, Macaulay and Hannah being similar. I loved in Jordan Harper's episode, he talked about how actually there's a lot of similarities between Macaulay and Wayne Grow. Yes. Uh, I, I do think that in a lot of ways, uh, Charlene is a shadow character 
of um, of Macaulay, and so many of the moves that she makes are moves that that Macaulay would make in that position. And that, that again, the thing that undoes them both is just this this moment where they cannot help but embrace this this almost gleeful emotional core that they've they've neglected or ignored and then once they do it you know they lose all grip on any type of uh any realistic chance of uh excuse me any realistic chance of survival it's and I, yeah, I just think it's amazing. emotional myopia like in those moments <laughs> that you're talking about right and, that, and and boy we are getting deep here tonight very deep and what i would say is for everyone what has been a huge surprise on this podcast it hasn't been a surprise that this movie is exceptional. It hasn't been a surprise to me that the the great guests that I speak to can talk at length um, about the power of the individual minute that we're talking about, but then as a portal to discuss broader themes of the movie or, or the genre or the filmmakers or the performers. But it's when I began this project, I couldn't, I, I always thought that people would want to talk about the conversation. And I always thought that people would want to talk about uh, the heist and perhaps yeah. I always thought that people were going to talk about some of the big moments like with Wangro, the Wangro death and then the, the airport. But a couple of moments, like three moments in this movie that have like completely surprised me that people are so passionate to talk about are the interactions between Donald Breeden and Lillian when oh, she goes God. to him after, um, uh, um, after his first day at work. That hurts my heart. That the, scene. the Charlene Shahela's gesture moment, which people have elevated as you have as like one of the most powerful moments in the film and that tunnel scene that tunnel scene is the most valuable piece if we're talking about real estate values that tunnel scene's value my projected value was only 825,000 but it's now like a 5.1 million dollar minute of this movie um and uh and very fortunately um, matt zolazites the editor of RogerEbert.com has spoken at length about that minute. So jealous, so and jealous so, of him, and yet so excited. And and I so I'm just getting, excited teasing that, that it is coming in the future. I was very pleased um, that he uh, he was uh, someone I was hunting down to be a part of this project since its inception. And um, so don't worry, there's a lot more that has been said about that minute and that this movie um, <laughs> that's waiting for you on the horizon. And Aside from literally De Niro or Man, I don't know if I could think of a better non-heat cast and crew person <laughs> to talk about what is for me the apex moment, the the capital M moment of heat, which is uh, Nate's weirdly touching farewell yes. to to Macaulay, and then that just that that almost am I going to do this? Holy shit! I'm I'm going to do this. Watching I'm going to live him, like watching this. Watching him this is, know what emotions are in his face. This is how real people live. Yes. Yeah. The, the, these are the kind of decisions real humans make, and I'm I'm going to make one. Hey, it, it got me Edie. It convinced her to come away with me on that beautiful Malachy Hill. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just going to do it again, and I'm going to get Wayne Grow, and we're going to get out of here, and like, it's going to end well for me. Can, like, I, can I just say that whatever county owns that hill, if it's not called Malachy <laughs> Hill, you're really doing yourself a disservice. They've, they've blown it. They've <laughs> blown it. And that, again, and it, but it's also, it, there's got to be some sort of weird city ordinance uh, or county ordinance that any picture you take from that hill, any selfie, any Instagram post, it always has to have the, the, the little bits of, uh, of, of grass and weeds and stuff like that 
fanning in the foreground because yes. the other if you don't do that then it's not malicky it's not malicky you gotta have the grass and then you know maybe you make an instagram story where you whisper <laughs> a voiceover of your inner monologue no 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 you can't be your own voiceover you've like got to get that. your cousin who sort of sounds like you to be your inner voice monologue but, can't, but it, isn't you it isn't you yeah. because then you're like that's not that's adrian brody isn't it that's it you know, that's not this guy that I'm looking at. Anyway, so that's a little mal- little, 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 little Malik digressions on this show. The digressions <laughs> oh of where God. it goes is is where what makes me most happy. What makes me I'm most very happy. proud of how digressive we're getting here, and I'm very proud of myself that I totally got to cheat and steal uh, steal a little bit of that minute, steal a little bit of it's, that that minute coming up and make it mine. You, look, it's it's impossible on this. It's impossible on this show, and that's why I said the discipline is that we talk about the minute. But I think it is it is literally it's a pathway to to talk about so many different things. And I think that that's how people have found entryways into the movie. If there haven't been people like you or I who've loved it, it's that sometimes there's something that's going on. You know, I've talked to a great writer for um, Roger Ebert dot com, Brendan Hodges, a Chicago critic, who you know talked about. Um, he was talking about the ent- like allegories to Antonioni, and and we just talked about Malik. But there's also you know moments that feel very Lynchian. You know Lynchian, you know Lynch making Mulholland and uh, and other LA based content that's like you know that feels like it's quintessentially about the city. And there's so many other filmmakers and styles and expressions of little things that you see where the film doesn't overplay its influences but is happy to interact with them you know it's just like a dialogue between different filmmakers from the same sort of context that have that same weird vision of like this is how i'm going to project my la and it might feel a little bit post-apocalyptic or it might feel like it's a bit of a dream or it might feel like it's this beautiful artifice and, and and we need this glorious romantic moment but it's all that collision of those things that makes this movie the the pinnacle the apex la movie it is. It is. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's cliche to say, I guess, at this point. But he is. It is the LA movie. Um, what was it? It's like uh, ninety-three different locations in Los Angeles, which was more than any other movie in history at the time, and maybe still is. But yeah, it is. It is just this kaleidoscopic collage of this city, and the way it unites all of these disparate threads of this city into a whole here here comes the pretentious writer part uh just as it <laughs> unites all of these characters and their cascading fates into this one not k-n-o-t of a story it, it, it is it's 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 the it's the best la movie ever made well okay uh, neck and neck with point break um <laughs> i was waiting for which one which neck and neck is it a serious neck I, and I, neck I, or is I, that? I can't i can't not mention point break which is probably it's the best looking la movie that's ever been made undeniable it it you know it i i hope it is becomes immortal whatever happens with human civilization it needs to be right there with the cave paintings for <laughs> it it, it, it Patrick it's, Swayze is as rugged as a cave painting in that movie. Let me tell you, he's a, a beautiful man. And it's just a travesty but, that they remade Point Break un, unabashedly and turned it into we this don't huge, talk about that. We don't talk about franchise. We don't, and, and, we don't and, talk. and all the nope. fans of said franchise that we're not going to even mention on this show just never even acknowledged that the first movie, which they claim is great, is a just flagrant ripoff of Point Break. <laughs> can we all just stop for a second? Can I just say how moved nearly moved to tears i am right now that i have somehow managed to not only cheat and jump to my favorite minute of heat but that i was able to work in a point break digression 
into this episode because Point Break really is. It is. It, I mean, there's there's no better uh, artistic concoction, I think, in in, <laughs> in the sum totality of human history. We have not topped Point Break. We just haven't, and we won't. There, there we won't. might, it's there, all might downhill. One, there might be one moment that does, and it's it's Nick Frost in Hot Fuzz watching Point Break. That might be the mo- like uh-huh. it's like that meta moment of watching an Edgar Wright movie, loving on and appraising Point Break, and then Nick Frost doing the little like fake gun toting <laughs> shooting in the air moment in Hot Fuzz. It's pretty close. It's close. You know, just Blake, for a fleeting moment. Blake, you're talking to a man who literally tears up when Bodie says, "Yo, Johnny, I'll see you in the next life." After they <laughs> jump out of an airplane together in Point Break, so you're not going to convince me that there's anything great better. But the second greatest film of all time, the second greatest LA film of all time, is Heat. It is amazing, and I know we're we're pushing time here. I do just want to throw out really quick, um, if we haven't made it clear enough, what a a cry, a quiet, quietly powerful secret weapon. Ashley Judd is in he and what and she does so so very much with not a whole lot of screen time um for a film that is this long she's really not in the movie all that much and yet every single time she gets on the screen uh it it is indelible and the, the 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 intelligence of her performance like her eyes are always working there, I, I love. I, I jump to another minute really quick, and this is such a weird bit of personal minutiae. But that bit when she, t- uh, when Macaulay tells her to clean up, go home. You know, I'm gonna pay. I'll, I'll pay your way out if I have to. If it doesn't work with Chris, the weird little confused back and forth that she does with her eyes, where she's like, oh, oh okay, I, I, and, and you already see her go accepting this as the new reality. Okay, I guess that's what I'm gonna do. I, okay, I'll. That the the reward is worth the risk of this. I'll do yes. this. You see her doing this moral and existential calculus in her head right then and there, and and she does it in every single goddamn scene we see her in. She's doing that, and it is just the fact that she is able to keep that from ever being one note. That she ever keeps that from being. It is never ever not empathetic and not human and not understandable as much as if you saw her character on the nightly news you would hate her for the the decisions you hear that she's made but when you watch it in this film you might disagree with the choices she makes but you never you never hate her for them and And, and i think it was only the revelations of last year around you know sorry to get to, to talking about nightly news but the revelations around the the silencing of her career from powerful, formerly powerful Hollywood individuals now makes total sense as to many times that I've watched this film in my life, I've always thought, and, I, and it's not to say that the Academy Awards are necessarily, and I think we can all argue as like a pre, the, the perfect um, encapsulation of prestige for Hollywood because there's always arguably films that are lost from that list or not voted for, etc., especially previous iterations of the Academy. But to think that someone as powerful with movie star charisma with in a huge masculine movie that makes such an indelible impact at the peak of her career doesn't get recognition for this performance and then therefore doesn't use this as a catapult as a lot of the actors who've worked alongside Michael Mann into other huge leading roles in other movies, it just seems like lunacy. Like you just go, where did this 
amazing performer disappear off the face of the earth to and you're now sort of starting to see her emerge back at, um, in, in popular consciousness and filmmakers actively pursuing her to be in their films again um, because of you know found out all of the you know the, the how she was tarnished um, as far as people reputationally tarnished by these assholes in the industry but it's like I've always wondered that huge gap it's like it's like the same tragedy you feel about like a someone not being able to play a sport, you know, for, a, for, yeah. a, you know, she's just taken off the field, taken out of rotation and she's like a star. She should have been the, one of the greats. And it really is. Yes, it, it is a thousand percent tragic, not just because we did not get more amazing performances no. to enjoy, no, no, but no. just what happened to her is just awful in general yes. and enraging. Um, but yeah, it is. She is one of those actresses, uh, not actresses, just performers in general. Um, one of those performers that is just so perfect and so in tune with their character and so intelligent and so just emotionally galvanizing that when you don't see them for a long time, it is mind boggling. And especially when you consider this was like her third movie. Like, yeah. She had done some some TV and, you know, before this movie, like, had a deleted scene in Natural Born Killers and, <laughs> like, had the role of, like, paint store owner's wife was the <laughs> title of her first movie role just, like, two years before Heat. And to, to you know, it, I think it's a, both a tribute to her extraordinary talent, but also um, man's incredible eye uh for actors and for for performers that you know he could trust to anchor this maybe small on screen time but massively important anchor of a character in a performance that he would be willing to to hinge that on someone relatively untested yes. i think speaks a lot about her talent and he was clearly right because you know here we are uh talking endlessly in between <laughs> uh in between uh jags on um uh, point Break, we were talking about just what a, an amazing, brilliant performance she gives, whether it is uh, when she is being verbal and she's sick of it or she, <laughs> um, you know, is teaching Dominic how to pronounce avocado or whether or not she is literally choosing to destroy her son's life. <laughs> so her murderous, alcoholic, Gambling degenerate, degenerate. Gambler, yep. uh, husband can drive off with a couple million in the back of his car to go do whatever, probably like die six months from now, having blown it all in Vegas that I, Oh my God. Yeah. We're going to have to do like a whole other hour where we just talk about like just how great she is. Cause I don't think we've hit that enough now. I'm realizing with just so amazing. And yeah, I just, I think she is kind of a quiet uh, MVP in heat that doesn't get talked about as much because you know, this is the movie that is the cataclysmic uh, encounter and the cataclysmic sit down between De Niro and Pacino. But Jesus Christ, uh, Ashley Judd just gives them no quarter in this movie at <laughs> no. all. She is, and as you said, she is literally the only person that that um, you know, aside from Pacino, you know, obviously, she's the only character in the movie of all these heavies and all these badasses and hard asses and hard cases. She's the only one that stands toe to toe with Neil McCauley, and and it's a it's an intimidating you, thing, it, yeah. And he and doesn't back down, and knows and how he, to and knows how to stand firm. 
Yeah, and even the flicker in his eye when she stands up to him, like, who else? Who else does that? Who else gets his attention like that? And uh, apologize for the squeaking. My dog's attacking a toy. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it just—I cannot say. Obviously, I cannot say enough about the strength of her performance. And I—it I, is one of my favorite things when I do revisit this film a million times over. Is how. Not that this is a boring film by any means, but how every scene with her in it comes alive in a very different way than the remaining 160-some, 155 <laughs> minutes that she's not in. That there is just there is just a tone and a feel and a life that uh, is in this uh, – in all of her scenes that I, I, just, I just adore. Well – I think you've nearly made it. I think you've nearly cracked the hundred and five. I think the hour and five minutes. I think you've nearly cracked it, Travis. Oh well, hell, I've got one more thing then I can throw out. <laughs> uh, do you? Does anyone ever noticed like Charlene Shaherless is a really weird name and a really hard name to say, and yes. I have to try really hard not to mess it up. Yes. I feel like uh, Jeff Bridges with peanut butter in my mouth <laughs> whenever I try to say it. But like Charlene Shaherless, Charlene Shaherless—that's that, just a weird car crash of vowels and consonants that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And, um, for, for the, uh, for the real heat fan, for the discerning heat fan, uh, if they're curious, uh, Shaherless with that spelling, uh, that insane spelling, uh, it is the eight millionth, 293,955th most common surname on the planet. <laughs> Currently, only four people in the world are known to have that surname. They all live in Israel. And what does this have to do with heat? And why Michael Mann, why did Michael Mann choose this name then for those characters, you might be asking? And my answer would be, I don't have a fucking clue. <laughs> I really don't. I just wanted everyone to know how seriously I took our fandom, that I looked that up for us all. I looked it up for all of us so we could finally know why... Four people currently in the world have that surname. All, all, all in Israel. All in um, Israel. I, I don't know what the significance of that. And there's only four. Um, but yeah, in case anyone was wondering why Kilmer and Judd had to have that wacky name that you always skip over and try not to say because you don't want to embarrass yourself because <laughs> I, I don't know about anybody else. I have a harder time pronouncing Charlene Shaherless than Dominic Shaherless has pronouncing avocado. Like I just, <laughs> I have to really stop avocado. and like avocado. mentally tiptoe around the word. But yeah, uh, yeah. Weird name, nothing to do with anything. But again, this is just like the, uh, just like the real estate information about uh, Drucker's This is House essential. Fitness. I just want to, there I want to qualify. No this other is, place. There's no other place for us to have this dialogue, and that's important. There's, there's no other place I can go, Blake, to give, <laughs> to give this shit that's rattling around in my head. And if you don't take it from me. I'm gonna be like um, I'm gonna be like James Dean at the end of East of Eden when his dad <laughs> won't take the money, and I'm just I'm gonna lose it, and so I, I gotta I gotta take this and I gotta give it to somebody. It's I'm and taking I it. Else, I don't know where else to go. You're taking it this. for us. You're you're bringing it to us, and we will disseminate it as part of one heat minute, and people will know more 
And people will, I, I guarantee you, please, I always ask at the end of every show, mail it one hit minute, tell me if you are now happy that you know about Charlene Chehalis and the fact that there are only four <laughs> Chehalises in the world. I need you to tell me because I, I these are things that I wonder as well. Like, it's such a unique name. Names are so important. Names are so important. People talk about it with different um, uh, people having uh, obsessive cues and tweaks with certain names um uh, Soderbergh being one that's fun with names names of characters and and here Michael Mann obsessively with Shahelis just such a random name Chirito, Chirito, I, Ch- and, a, and a lyrical quality Chirito yeah. Treo Shahelis and Macaulay yeah, sure. you know ma- maybe it, you know I wouldn't put it past him to have been a, a real life associate of the original criminal Neil Macaulay and he's just taken that name as well, maybe it was maybe, some prominent. Maybe, crook. maybe one, maybe one of the four people on planet Earth <laughs> uh, with the name Shahurlis is like the great grandkid of uh, uh, the original Macaulay gang or something like that. But yeah, I just I love it. Uh, Charlene Shahurlis, the most insanely unrealistically <laughs> alliterative name in the Michael Mann canon. And yes, I am glad that I know it now. And every time I watch the film from here on out, I'm not going to be thinking. Oh, what an amazing performance. Oh, my God, look at Judd's eyes. Look how she is conveying so much pain and history uh, and struggle in this moment. I'm going to be sitting there thinking, there's like four other dudes on planet Earth with that last name. And thank you for that unnecessary information that is now going to be a permanent subtitle etched into my eyes when I see her performance in this movie. I am, I am so happy I have been able to time capsule this, this ludicrous and pointless minutia <laughs> that I've been able to wedge it into the dirt of one heat minute where it's just going to live on in, uh, in, in forever. Although I highly doubt anyone is going to have gotten this far in the podcast to listen to me. <laughs> they will. They will. Uh, uh, continue. Our, our listeners, jump. Travis, they will. They will. This is a dedicated. <laughs> oh. This is a dedicated lot. You did have one well, question. I'm going to prompt you just so yes, you can really kick it home. Okay. What was your question you wanted to ask me? Well, also because I really, I got to smoke Lynch now, and I got to, I got to break the record. I'm, 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 I'm like uh, the guy at the end of Michael Mann's uh, Jericho Mile. I, I'm, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna win. I got to, I got to win this. <laughs> um, uh, I, I was curious, and I don't like, as I've said, I, I'm only to about like into the thirty or forty minute mark of the podcast itself. I've jumped ahead to a bunch of episodes that have involved Charlene, and I've listened to episodes of people that I know. Um, but for the, I have not listened to every episode yet and I did not know if this was mentioned elsewhere. I am curious, what is Blake's favorite one heat minute? So I think we may have answered it at some point, but it's good for a current top up. My thing was what surprised me is that minutes have emerged up the ladder. So I'll tell you what my number one is, but a minute that like, just destroys me every time is the Don Breeden Lillian minute. Like that mm. has elevated yep. itself. Like we talked about some of the more iconic minutes, you know, you know, your, your personal favorite Travis in the tunnel, the gesture with Charlene, uh, obviously the conversation, obviously some minutes in the heist, you know, particularly when Chris changes the magazine, um, you know, the revel, the, the reveal minute, like what are they looking at? We just got made, you know, like that, you know, there's yeah. those moments or, or the, you know, the guy who, um, 
bangs the inside of the uh, the surveillance van, and then Neil and, and Neil and Pacino are looking at each other through infrared or infra blue. Michael Mann can't use infrared; he needs an infra blue camera. Um, so there's those minutes which have all been there, but the Lillian and Breeden minute, as like we talked about, a microcosm, a decision, an encounter, and sort of making decisions about how you're going to that are going to affect the outcome of the rest of your life. That minute has elevated significantly, but. The the minute that I can't ever shake and the minute that continues to impact me as an adult the way that everything does is I can't get past the final minute of this film. Just the the like the in in like the unquantifiable weight of hundred and sixty five minutes of screen time and you said it perfectly before, this knot, K N O T, this knot of these uh, intersecting stories and everything that was seen in this epic and the staging and, and then just the, the way that Neil espouses his own sort of philosophy and the way that Vincent reacts to it and the way that the score swells and the, just the entire, and, and the minutia of talking about the glory of a performance that says nothing. I think that final minute of Pacino's performance as he's, faces rippling with the conflicting emotions of that situation it that is the moment that in amongst 165 minutes that get me every time that moment is the moment that gets me every single time the the weight of this entire film i think lands in that in pacino's face and i think he does it justice so right now and probably forever the moment that we're mounting towards the very last moment of this movie is still my absolute favorite but there's so many more moments that are swirling about like a lottery, like, you know, like just like you could pick a, a countless what number about of this? other what moments. It just, it just, and then there's just one that's just sitting above it. And largely it's influenced by the collective weight of all those other minutes, just landing into that. Cause I think, you know, for you and I who write about films a lot, it's like, you know, ending beginnings of films, endings of films, this special final moments are just so, like there's, they come with such power. Like a movie that can end like with just a powerful and ambivalent moment, they don't come around that often. Like the the one that I think a lot of people talk about most recently is say like Moonlight. The ending mm. of Moonlight is staggering. It's absolutely staggering. Um, and to end with such power and with with just underplaying what everyone wants to happen, underplaying it and just playing it with such perfection, just a deft control and then finishing the movie. Um, it's, yeah, I just think they come around rarely. And when they happen, you're like, Jesus, that is powerful. Like, and, and I think that that's, that's why I have to say it's my favorite. Well, man did say um, at a recent Q and a for the, uh, the 4k release of the film, and I'm sure he said it elsewhere. Um, he did write, or he did enter into the heat screenplay by writing the ending first. Yes. And as he said, he re- he reverse engineered the the entirety of the film, uh, moving backwards from that moment where these two men, the only two men like each other in the whole world, you know, are with each other when one of them dies, and that everything else literally was birthed like from Zeus's forehead right <laughs> out of right out of that moment. And that's why I think this film is so thematically powerful. And that the, why it holds up to the scrutiny of one heat minute is literally every minute 
is that 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 ending is like the big bang yes and every minute that comes out of that just like how we all have a little bit of star stuff in us from the initial <laughs> big bang every minute of this film contains particles and elements and little bits of business from that final sequence it's it's blown throughout uh the entire film and that is why i think this is such a a thematically cohesive uh, story and portrait of these characters is because everything, every single thing of this, every little strand of this insanely dense tapestry, whether it's Wayne Grow or Van Zant or Dominic Shaherlis or the TV guy that sees the 211 at the beginning of the film with this TV in his cart and he, he hears Slick, all of these characters, big and small, they are all intrinsically tied to that one minute where these two men recognize one another and recognize that they are alone outside of one another and that they are, they are what they're, all they are is what they're after. And that, that moment of recognition right before we cut to black, um, that, like I said, every scene just is a part, it has particles of that in it. And it, that's why he does a masterpiece. And that's why, again, it holds up to literally, insane people sitting around <laughs> and spending an hour uh, uh, talking about a 60 More second. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. well, I told you what I was going to do. Uh, uh, but to sit around and just chat about these 60 second slivers, it's because it all, it all comes from that, from that final scene, that, that perfect, perfect, perfect moment of cinema that we are very lucky to have. And uh, yeah, that that is the film. That scene is the film. Well, that is the end of this episode of One Heat Minute, the hundred and twenty fifth episode of One Heat Minute. This has been my amazing guest, Travis Woods. Travis, thank you so much for being part of this show. And uh, I knew that even before we started recording in our exchanges in email and on Twitter that this was going to be phenomenal. So I just want to say a huge thank you uh, for your participation. It's It's been incredible. Travis is at a heart of gold on Twitter. Um, you can find he's got a little contently link up on his Twitter profile so you can see all of his stuff from Brightwall Dark Room, a great publication, and um, his new Cinephilia and beyond um, gig so you'll see him um, contributing there mate this has been outstanding two all time moments finding out the property values um, and also <laughs> um, uh, and, and also finding out that there are only four Shahilises in the world that are uh, that we with, understand with that spelling with that, with spelling. that spelling full disclosure there are other Shahilises just different with, spellings full with that spelling um, yeah. but thank you so much for being a part of One Eight Minute it's been an absolute pleasure Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. Mr. Garth Franklin, as always, thank you for our web design. Paul Davies, thank you for our awesome theme. And guys, thank you so much uh, for being a part of One Heat Minute. And uh, we'll catch you in another episode of One Heat Minute just around the corner unless, you know, you decide to make a decision that sends your son off to a gladiator academy in Chino. (laughs) Um, But uh, we'll catch you in another episode soon. See you guys.